0: Please fasten your seat belts. The skies are rough and our two pilots have no idea where they're going. So kick back, relax, and enjoy your flight on no blackout days. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. No blackout dates. I've done trips where I've gone from home in California to Iceland for 10 days, to Greenland for 15 days, to India for 30 days where you're bringing like dry suits and wetsuits and water housings and this and that, and then you're going climbing in India and you're bringing ropes, that's kind of the beauty.
1: What's up everybody, welcome back to another week of No Blackout Dates. My name's Tim. And I'm Evan. And we got good friend of at Network, Chris Burkard, on the show today to talk about his new book, Wayward, an incredible documentation of his fantastic career as a travel photographer and filmmaker. He's also going to be talking about how he manages risk on the road, how he packs, and uh, what it was like to bike across Iceland in the middle of winter. This is one of the best conversations we've had on the show. We're going to get into that in just a minute, but first, I understand Eben has a great hot take question to kick us off this week.
2: All right, Tim. Thanks for the setup. I'm going to get into it first. For you, I want to ask, when friends ask you to drive them to the airport, is your immediate thought, yeah, sure, no problem, or fuck, how do I get out of this?
1: It's usually the latter, although I usually end up doing it if I can because I also need rides to the airport exactly.
2: a lot. Exactly. It's it's the transactional experience.
1: Uh, so yeah, it, that's a conundrum, man. I, I have a funny story actually about driving a friend to the airport in Denver once. Years ago, I was driving uh, my friend Tracy to DIA and I Popped a tire on the highway on the way out there, and we had to pull over into this gas station parking lot and wait for like an hour uh, for somebody to bring me a new tire so that I could put it on and go to the airport. And she nearly missed her flight. So, needless to say, she never asked me for another ride to the airport after that.
2: Exactly. Yeah, it's like it's it's this weird balance of power thing where like we need rides a lot. So if someone asks you, I want to do it for them so that I can then use them for a ride, but If that balance ever shifts too heavily in one direction or the other, I'm kind of like, all right, I'm in a I'm in a ride deficit. So I need I'm going to chill out on giving you rides for a bit until we can get your numbers up on my rides, you know, and I do have one friend who pretty reliably will always bring me to the airport. Uh, I say half the time I just take the bus the other half. I'll I'll ask him and he, he usually does it. And then he'll ask me, but when he asks me, it's always at like crazy hours. And I feel so bad. Like he asked me yesterday and I feel so bad because I just like, I I might have something else going on. It's not a big deal. I could probably cancel this other thing pretty easily, but it's just like, it's always at like nine or 10 o'clock at night or at like six in the morning. So he drove me to the airport a few months ago and he got pulled over for texting and driving. (laughs) Oh no. For having his phone, at not even he wasn't really wasn't even texting. He was handing his phone to like to me, and the cop just sniped it right through the window. Saw it, pulled him over, and I was just like, felt I felt so bad because he was doing me a favor. But it was like three o'clock in the afternoon. It was a reasonable hour to be driving someone somewhere. And that yesterday, he's like, oh, can you drive me to the airport at like ten thirty at night? And I'm like, I kind of had plans, and it's just late, and I'd be getting back at like you know one it just sucks so am i still obligated to do it or does my obligation is it somewhat lessened because he's asking me to do it at a inconvenient time i don't know yeah i don't know that's a tough one because
1: you know if you say no enough times he's gonna start saying no to you so like you want to keep that relationship healthy your airport ride i
2: know i know that's tough all right Well, I guess that kind of answers that one. It's a tough balance. Next question. We discussed this a little bit in the interview, but I want to dive into it a little bit more deeply. Is it good for professions like photography that so many people can access it now? Does it crowd the field? Is it like social media where if anyone can post anything at any time, the legit stuff kind of gets lost in the shuffle. It's like news too, with so many low quality news outlets or even propagandistic news outlets peddling fake news. Real news gets harder to identify. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'd say it's a bad thing. I think it's better for equal access and stuff like that. I do think that it burns people out faster. Um, like, I think that, you know, Instagram, particularly as somebody who, you know, works in travel, I don't really always want to see travel photos on Instagram all the time, you know, because I, I don't know. It's just I think that the fact that everything is so inundated now because of social media burns people out faster on things that they otherwise would probably willingly consume for a long time that said i think it is better for equal access uh, for everybody to be able to post a photo and potentially have it viewed
2: talking to chris i guess kind of swayed me a little bit i still think though that my stance is it's not good because while i understand that professionals and amateurs can coexist in the same space and the amateurs can introduce professionals to new techniques and uh, light a creative fire under them to keep getting better and not get complacent. It's It really is just, you don't have to have any qualifications or attention to the, the craft to produce content and get the exact same amount of visibility as someone like Chris, who is a professional. And I keep equating it to news, but like if I'm on Facebook and I'm scrolling through Facebook, my an article from the Washington Post that has been thoroughly researched and reported over the course of months gets the exact same amount of real estate on my Facebook page as an article from the Epoch Times that is essentially propaganda designed to sow division and hate. And if I'm not media literate I'm weighing those two posts with the exact same level of authority. The stakes are lower when it comes to just Instagram photography and and photos you see online. But I think it's a similar concept where basically you're looking at just a ton of shitty over-filtered photos on social media. And then Chris posts something, you know, with a a well-thought-out caption and a story behind it that really took a lot of uh, effort and expertise. And I, in my mind, I just kind of blow past it. I might be like, oh, that looks cool, but it's just a drop in the bucket compared to everything else out there.
1: With what you're saying on news, like I've been an advocate for a long time. I've gone on rants about this, that there should be media literacy taught in school.
2: Yeah, and anyone who wants to learn more about that can tune into our episode with Jengis Yar, where we talk about photojournalism and media literacy.
1: Okay, Evan, well, I've got a couple of questions for you First of all, uh, ironically, in line with the question you just asked me, is airport parking bullshit?
2: <laughs> I can't say I've ever used airport parking. Uh, what's the cost of airport? Like, how much do you have to pay per day?
1: Well, it depends. It can be anywhere from you know five to ten dollars to upwards of thirty, depending on whether you park in the close-in covered lot or if you use one of the non-airport affiliated far away lots where they have to bus you into the terminal afterwards. So it can be affordable. I've never parked in the actual close up lots, but I have used the uh, farther away ones a couple of times, and I've never really found it to be worth it. I would rather just take the train to the airport or get dropped off by someone.
2: I think in most cases it's bullshit. Uh, I think pretty much you can always find a cheaper and even similarly efficient alternative to to doing that. If you're only going to be gone for like two or three days, like it's a really quick work trip and your work is compensating you for that, then totally. If I was getting reimbursed, I'd definitely do that. But yeah, I mean, I pay $22 to take the bus directly to the airport. I have no other cost. That's it. $22 there, $22 back. And that's if I can't get a ride to the airport itself. So no, I've never considered parking in the airport. If you don't have anyone to drive you and there's you're disconnected from a bus, then... I guess you'd have to do it.
1: Okay. Uh, My next question. All large electronics must be turned off on a plane. You hear this during the intercom warnings at the beginning of the flight and, uh, again, when the plane's about to land. Does this mean that you're actually supposed to turn your laptop off or are you just supposed to shut it and put it back in your bag?
2: I think it means turn it off. But I I thought your question was going to be, is that bullshit? And I th- honestly think that it's kind of like daylight savings where it's just like an outdated thing that we still do. And this is me having no expertise in this whatsoever. But I don't think that me failing to put my phone on airplane mode has anything to do with the mechanical operation of the plane. I think that if everyone left their phones on, everything would be just fine. I almost think it's it's this remnant from like the 70s when... I don't know, technology was first introduced and they were afraid that it was going to, your cell phone signal was going to disrupt the plane machinery and you're going to crash, you know, because you know that on every flight that they tell you, oh yeah, you got to turn your, your shit off. Like 90% of people don't do it. And yet how many plane crashes are there? Like how many malfunctions? There's almost zero.
1: I never turned my laptop off. I have to say, I I'd never even thought of doing that. Uh, until recently, I was like listening to the warning, and I was like, I wonder if I should actually just turn it off and not just have it closed. I do put my phone in airplane mode, because I don't want to be that guy. But I am always conscious of the fact that probably 2 thirds of the people don't. In fact, you see people sitting there on their phones after they do the warning. And if it was, I, I have to think, and this is also me not being entirely educated on the topic, but if, if there was even any small microcosm of a chance that it was going to cause the plane to crash, they would enforce the policy.
2: Exactly. Yeah, no one's coming. I mean, that'd be tough to enforce, but yeah, yeah they don't seem to really care. Like I pretty blatantly, I'll always put on airplane mode, but I'd probably take a little longer than I should to do it. But I don't use my laptop ever on an airplane, so I don't have an answer for you on the, the shutting versus turning it off. For me, it's more of a phone thing.
1: All right. Well, we'll have to research that and get back on a, on a future episode about it. But with that, uh, we will get into our interview with Chris, and we'll see you on the other side. Okay, Chris Burkard is a renowned photographer, National Geographic explorer, and a person who has been venturing recently into the uh, the business of bookmaking, particularly publishing his photographs and documenting his extensive travels in Iceland. Chris, welcome to No Blackout Dates. Thank you for joining us.
0: Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it, you guys. and I'm, uh, I'm stoked to be catching up about my work and kind of where I'm at these days.
1: Yeah, yeah. It seems like uh, travels are a constant thing for you, but Iceland seems to be the most constant destination, so let's jump in there. I know you've been there, what, a dozen-plus times over the years, have done everything from cross-country biking trips to uh, photography expeditions. Give us a little background on what originally drew you to Iceland, what keeps you coming back, and, and why it stands out so much. Yeah,
0: I mean, I think that really what it boils down to is that there was a time in my life when I was working for the magazine Shooting Surfing, and I just was... Seemingly had the dream job, you know. I was out there like in the tropics, shooting these beautiful places, and it was incredible. But truly, I felt like something was left um, to be desired in that situation. And when I first kind of set my sights on looking for harder to access, more remote, more wild environments, that was one of the first places that I dreamt of going. I was like right around 21 years old, 22 years old. Um, And I just think it left such a deep impression upon me that it was a place that I was like, I need to come back here. Like, this is so amazing. You know, we were were camping on these remote beaches out in the middle of nowhere and navigating through massive icebergs to find, you know, cold, you know, unique, uh, harsh waves. And just, I felt like every photograph from that trip meant something more to me than what I had experienced in the past. It was, it was... um, it was visceral to, I guess, put it into a term that you know, people could understand. And so I, I think that that was what drew me in. I was on assignment my first trip back in, you know, or again, like mid 2000s um, for men's journal. And I was shooting an assignment on a surfer named Timmy Turner and that was the first reason that I went and I've been back a lot, yeah.
2: I have an Iceland question. I'm going to Iceland uh, a week from today actually and I've never been to the West Fjords, and that's where we're going. Have you Have you been to that part of the country, and do you have any standout spots that you just say you'd have to go there if you're visiting for the first time?
0: Yeah, I mean, I've been to the West Fjords a lot, a ton of times. Yeah, I'm um, sure. Uh, I would say that Isafjordr, the main town, is, is really rad. It's the biggest town in the West Fjords. Um, it's just a really cool community, but from there, things only get more interesting. I would say going out towards Patrick's Fjord is is incredible and going to um, the big, massive sea cliffs that are like at the very furthest kind of eastern point over there, um, or sorry, western point is is incredible. They're worth driving out there. Um, Also, uh, there's a red sand beach right outside of Patrick's Fjord that's also like exceptional, really cool and unique. That's a a spot that I, I love. Um, but the entire drive from East of Fjord to Patrick's Fjord is just littered with like hot springs and really rad spots. Anytime you have an opportunity to go around a headland on a dirt road or something like that, take it. I mean, there that's where all the best stuff lies for sure, um, instead of just intersecting and driving over a fjord. Um, but Thingari, Flatteri, all those little towns are incredible. Chris, um, you
1: even got the pronunciation down. You've I know, been yeah. There a bunch of times.
0: Well, I've been there 57 times, so...
1: 57 times. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, speaking of which, one of your recent expeditions was biking across the heart of the country in winter. Um, I was following your Instagram posts, and it seems like, you know, inevitably there's going to be highs and lows on a trip like that. But what what were some of the most unforeseen challenges in planning and executing that trip?
0: Yeah, I mean, that was, a, that was an interesting experience and um, I, I, I love the idea of the process where you give yourself into like this, this, these planning stages, you get the right equipment, you get the right gear, you know, you test the gear, you're like, oh, this sucks, I can't bring it, yada, yada, yada. Um, because it's funny living in California where it's, you know, sunny and 70 degrees and then you go somewhere where it's, uh, you know, the middle of Iceland, you know, essentially subarctic, but it's you know negative twenty, negative thirty with wind chill, and you are riding your bike through over frozen rivers and lakes, and you're just like hoping that all the testing you did back home some way prepared you for what you're going to find there. It's it's really challenging, and that is a, an eye opener. And um, with that trip, I think the thing that um, that really opened my eyes the most was the fact that you know um, truly you get these dream conditions where when the snow, when it's springtime, and because Iceland's so windy, when when the wind blows over a lot of that snow and it, it, it has like a cold snap, right? It's like hot, cold, hot, cold. And then the wind comes, it can create a crust that's called like the super crust. It's like riding a bike on cement, but you're on snow. And you can ride anywhere. The whole world around you becomes like a playground. Imagine riding outside And everything's covered with snow and it's kind of rolling and beautiful and all of a sudden you're on a bike that has studded tires five-inch tires um, and and you can ride over anything so for many Icelanders they'll tell you that winter means freedom you know because you can drive a truck over lakes and rivers and a lot of times in fragile environments but when they're covered in snow it's totally safe right Um, so it's really cool to be there and it felt like there were days where it felt like we were riding on a literal playground but when the snow was not good, it was like the worst thing you could ever imagine. Soft and you're, you're, you're postholing every foot and you're pushing your bike. And, you know, there were moments where we would be on a, the dreamiest landscape ever, just like, you know, screaming at the top of our lungs, like loving life. And then all of a sudden we would be thrust into this seven hour hike a bike over a glacier where we were thrown into really bad conditions. And that took a toll on us emotionally and physically, and um, we weren't fully prepared for that. And it was, um, and it was an eye-opener. So that is kind of, I think, the thing I wasn't fully prepared for and um, learned to appreciate because that's, you know, the the key with Iceland is it can go from being epic to being not so epic really fast.
2: As you just kind of exemplified, working as a travel photographer comes with a whole different set of uh, challenges and considerations than being a different kind of photographer. If you were to come to a point where you couldn't travel, got too old to travel, wanted to remain homebound or more domestic, do you think you would find the same joy in the profession as you do traveling? Or is that a whole different arena that you're not interested in? Is the whole joy of photography for you in the traveling, in the going to a new place?
0: I would say that it's funny because you you bring up a really good point is, um, for me photography wasn't like the that wasn't like the thing it was about using the camera as a tool to see a world i didn't know and at the time when i was in my early 20s i hadn't been anywhere nowhere like i had literally been as far as you could drive in a day from my house in california that was where i where i went um so to me it was this eye-opening experience where when I picked up a camera, the motivation wasn't to like be creative or be some creative genius. It was like, oh man, the camera could maybe take me somewhere epic. The camera could maybe show me a world I didn't know. The camera could be my literal passport to the unknown. But point being is like, that is so rad. Yet at the same time, I'm equally as excited to explore places in and around where I live, because that's where I started my career, just exploring what was accessible to me and finding growth in that way. Like, I think that that for me, it's not about the camera, it's about storytelling, and I've said this a bajillion times, so I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself, because I talk about this on like every podcast, is like, cameras are cool, but storytelling is at the root of that. Camera is just one way of telling a story, this verbally, we're having a conversation, this is also storytelling. This is also me allowing myself to be creative in some way, shape, or form. And I love that, I mean, that's what I strive for. So I guess what I would say is that when I started my career, yes, the camera was the only tool I had, you know? I've often related it to like a barista, you know, making just one drink. It would suck if you went to your coffee shop and they're like, all I can make is a flat white, right? Like you're like, well, I want a cappuccino. So a good storyteller has a lot of tools They have a lot of, they can make a variety of drinks and they can offer you an experience in different ways. So nowadays, I would say in the beginning of my career, it would have been scary to like not be able to travel, to not be able to go anywhere because I think I would have gotten burnt out. But now I love the fact that there are multiple ways in which I can transmute, translate an experience to somebody. The camera just happens to be one of them, a very fun one, a very creative one, but not the only one. And so I think that I could find joy in not necessarily traveling, being homebound, you know, exploring and, you know, seeing the places that I, I love through different perspectives.
2: So rather than considering yourself a photographer or a traveler, first and foremost, your primary concern, I guess, is being a storyteller.
0: Yeah, I mean that's what I'm hired to do. I'm hired to tell stories.
1: Sure. And you've ventured into other forms of storytelling, like filmmaking with your film Unner, which is also documents the the family of a father and son in Iceland. I'm curious when you're kind of crossing between mediums of storytelling, is there anything that stands out to you that is consistent across all of them, like that, that draws a story together and gets people interested?
0: Absolutely. I think one of the biggest, biggest pieces of advice that I got was like a couple years ago really was like when it came to filmmaking, which relates to everything, is like don't describe to people what they can already see and don't tell people, what emotion they should be feeling. Like when you're seeing a film, you don't need the character to be talking you through what they're going through. It's better to let the viewer decipher that for themselves. A great actor or a great, you know, subject document, you know, if you're shooting a documentary, will thrust you into that experience and allow the viewer to be a part of that just by how vulnerable they are, right? So I feel like allowing someone to give you their personal kind of, um, you know, if I'm shooting a documentary and I'm doing an interview, I, I want somebody to kind of like tell me what they felt and what they saw and what they, the emotions they were going through, rather than to describe step by step what happened, right? That can usually be figured out, especially in an image, right? I don't need to tell you that like this photo right here is like, uh, you know, that we're, we're in the cold and we're surfing and blah, blah, blah. Like you, you can see all those things with your eyes. You have eyes, right? What's the point? The goal should be for me to help the viewer understand what i felt shooting that or what the subject felt being there that is how we create a more visceral connection to the image right that's the important thing that's where show I don't
1: think. tell that's it's yeah. similar with writing you know that's that was one of the first things i remembered learning you know in school yeah. as a writer is show don't tell if if you can't describe if you can't trust the reader to pull out what you're trying to say, then it's not a good story.
0: Right, yeah, and then what happens is you end up over-describing things and you end up taking two hours to describe what you could have said in five minutes,
2: right? As far as photography goes and accessing photography, the, the field, kind of like the travel industry in general, is more accessible to everyday people more than ever before, thanks to the social media and influencing And people with an iPhone can, you know, make money as a photographer now. Is that, do you think, good or bad? Does it give people the ability to access a space that was previously unavailable to them? Or does it kind of dilute a space with a lot of work, both good and bad? And so the quality, the average quality, just kind of naturally diminishes?
0: Um you know, I think if anything, there's a lot of noise in the world right now. Let's, let's be honest. There's a lot of noise happening. I can see kind of what your, your thoughts are in the fact that like, it can dilute some of the really good stuff if everybody's putting content out there and ever, you know, but at the same time, I feel like all that does is lights a fire under my ass to like create something more interesting, more unique to be more creative, right? Because now everybody has the ability to tell a story how great is that so those that are good at it will rise to the top those that are more vulnerable those that are more consistent those that are more accessible those that are more um you know attuned to like listening to what people want to know and hear are going to rise to the top and i think that what i love is that nowadays um it just feels in some way like there are more ways to be inspired um i love the fact that like people realize that in the palm of their hand they've got a way to you know connect to people and translate an experience and I've absolutely benefited from it there are times where I'm like holy cow people are pushing the envelope but, you know like my work feels outdated yada yada I go through those emotions too but at the same time I'm constantly reminded that like the point of this this experiment this experience is to do the very best you can and to create the coolest story that you can in terms of what it is we're telling people, you know? Um, and so I feel like I'm constantly um, kept to a standard, right? And that's been helpful. I, I personally love it. You know, I'm not like one where I'm like, oh man, I wish everybody would like, you know, stop sharing photos and stories. Like I, I think the world needs more of that. The world needs more honesty and more relatable stories. And I think that right now what we're doing, this is a podcast. What, How different is this than like sitting around a campfire talking? Right, like we used to for thousands of years, communication, it's a conversation, yeah, conversation, communication is the core of what the world needs the most. Like I think that this is this is an answer to a lot of the world's problems. Is long form communication where we're listening and we're engaging and we're we're talking about things like that. that. To me, is I what I hope I see more of because I think a lot of the short term communication is and just like the banter back and forth. I don't think that that benefits a ton of people. Um, I think that the hope for me is that that leads to more immersive experiences.
2: We're going to take a short break from the interview for a word from our partners at Matador Network.
0: Are you a travel writer, filmmaker, or an influencer who loves to travel the world for free? Check out creators.matadornetwork.com and explore one of our many press trips. Sign up for free. That's creators.matadornetwork.com. Happy travels.
2: And now back to the interview. It
1: seems to me like in a lot of these fields with creating and storytelling, there's something to be said for longevity uh, and for people that, that, that ride out the wave of whatever might be trendy or big at the moment and continue to build their career. It's the same in, in, in everything from music to writing to photography. Uh, I remember there's a quote from, I think, Gary Vaynerchuk said that, you know, I created a million pieces of content before anybody gave a shit about one of them. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on longevity? And and at what point do you feel like you had, you know, a solid career going?
0: Yeah, I, I would agree with what he's saying, you know. Um, I think he really likes to hear himself talk, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, and I think you have to take that with a grain of salt sometimes, like people that really love to hear themselves speak. Um, it, it, it can, sometimes it's a little bit of a red flag for me personally. But at the same time, yeah, fully agree with him. That's a great way of looking at it. Like. I think that those who create will create, right? That's just a part of the process. Like I, I, would, I would be you know nervous for anybody to look at my archives of work and be like, oh man, Chris has like shot a lot of terrible photos. I have shot so many bad photos. In fact, so, so many that you, you could never fully comprehend how many. And I, I, I love that though. I mean, that's the process or that's the part of my experience that I feel like has set me apart is the willingness and ability to fail, like really big, and like take chances and risks. And with my business, I've taken so many risks. With my personal career, I've taken so many risks. With expeditions, I've taken a lot of risks. Risk comes with the knowledge. Uh, and the experience of knowing to what point you can push it, to what line you can push it. It's a risk to make a book and self-publish it, right? I've done that a couple times. I've also worked with big publishers, and but paying the 15, 20, 30 grand to make a book and then put it out in the world with the hope that somebody's going to care about it or buy it, like that's a risk. That's a financial risk. Um, going on an expedition to the ends of the earth to hope that you're going to find I don't know a wave or this or that that's a terrifying risk but after you do it enough times and you take slow and incremental risks um you start to find success you realize that okay i'm comfortable doing that and i think that you know to kind of get back to your point like to me when we put work out there in the world that is scary that that hasn't been vetted that we're not Sure of like we're taking those risks slowly, but surely and I think that that's a big part of it Is just knowing that at a certain point you need to be validated in what you're doing You need to be validated in your work, and you need to feel the confidence to put it out there
1: Where's the balance in the risk though? Like at what 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 point do you see that the return on the risk is gonna be worth it? Even if it's not perfect because there are you know you certainly you could fly to you know the tip of New Zealand right now to chase a wave and shoot a film and then come home you could also put a hundred thousand dollars down on a project, uh, not knowing what's going to happen. But where is that? Where where do you find the medium of okay? I'm comfortable doing this risk.
0: It's an excellent question. I mean, this is this is the good stuff, right? And there's no recipe for that. There's no there's no way to like analyze that or put it into an arithmetic and be like, well, I I, I invest this much time and I have this much return and yada yada yada. Some of the Biggest investments I've made or risks I've taken have failed miserably. But the point is that is that a failure if I take a second, look back, process what went right, what went wrong, how I'd do it differently, and then put that into the next one. Um, so I, I guess again to answer your question, it's not so much about like finding some recipe or formulaic process to figure out how much risk is enough. It's more about like. Are you comfortable failing? Ask yourself that first. Like, and if you do fail, what will you learn or gain from it, right? Um, What I've told people and what I advise everybody, which I think is maybe the best piece of advice that I could ever offer, is when you are finding out what you wanna do, where you wanna go, what you wanna create, work backwards. Think about the end result first. What is the end result? If you figure out what the end result looks like, then you can work backwards to get there, and you can figure out how to navigate through a lot of potentially sticky situations that might have hung you up, and focus on just the, the the productive ones. Right.
1: So let's turn this into travel. Uh, walk us through packing for an expedition. What what is uh, a must-have that might be a little under the radar that maybe not every photographer brings with them, and how do you kind of uh, discern what you're going to need?
0: You know. I could do an entire podcast and write,
1: <laughs> right? Write As any li- good traveler could.
0: <laughs> write libraries on packing, not on travel, but but on packing, because I love like packing is like, it's like the constant arithmetic that that controls my life, right? Um, I've done trips where I've gone from home in California to Iceland for ten days, to Greenland for fifteen days, to India for thirty days, where you're bringing like dry suits and wet suits and water housings and this and that and then you're going climbing in india and you're bringing ropes and it's you know it's like that's kind of the i think that's the beauty is realizing where a product a device whatever it is can can serve multiple purposes right i think that good packing doesn't happen at the last minute right it's usually the byproduct of years or months of understanding and, and weeks of like testing or whatever it is and then figuring it out. So for me, again, I'm, I'm working backwards. What is my objective? What do I have to do, right? And then I'm going to put those bigger priority items in my bags first, right? What lenses do I need? What lenses can serve two purposes? You know, is it a portrait lens for this commercial assignment? And then it's also going to be great for night exposures. And then it's also going to be good for action. Like, how can I whittle it down to the least amount of gear possible? Um, and then, you know, what other essentials do I need a water housing? Okay, Which ports can I bring? can which lenses work in which ports, right? How many ports can I get it down to? Um, am I bringing a wetsuit? how temp How cold is the water temp? Yada, yada, yada. Um, then i'm I'm packing those essentials first, and then I'm leaving room for like clothing, um, other pieces of gear. Like am I bringing certain food because I can't get food in Greenland that I might want? You know, am I gonna bring a jar of peanut butter? Um, oh, maybe I'll bring dehydrated peanut butter. That's even easier to pack and easier to travel with. Um, am I bringing, you know, what clothing? That's always the biggest crux is the clothing, right? Because how many layers of gear can I bring that will double as multiple things? I'm not a big fan of being like, oh, I've got my my shoes for the plane that I'm going to use for this one, you know, six-hour journey, and then I'm never going to use them again. They're just going to take up space. So I'll, you know when it comes to traveling and traveling well, certain sacrifices have to be made. Some of those sacrifices are in terms of comfort. Some of those sacrifices are in terms of like, you know, you, you get on the plane with the items that you could not live without. That's like my first rule of thumb. Like if you, if you need those winterproof boots in Norway or Iceland, and you know that the moment you get there, you're not gonna be able to get them. You better wear them on the plane. I don't know I don't know how un, un you know happy that's going to make you, but it's just a part of the experience, right? So I look at the essentials and I try to pack those first and I try to think about what can I get onto the plane first? What do I mind losing? Because whatever you put into those check bags, you could potentially
2: lose. The losing gear thing is interesting to me because especially as a photographer or filmmaker, I mean, you're so dependent on your gear to do your job. And if you, it's not just me traveling with clothes. And if I have to go without some clothes, it's fine. You know, if you lose anything, like you could be just fucked. So totally. Yeah. So you have to decide.
0: I look at that too. I'm like, okay, great. If I'm packing a drone in my bag, I will want to make sure that in Reykjavik, is there a, a drone store I could buy more batteries or I could rent a drone or, you know what I mean? Like things like that will come into play. So I'll be like, okay, well, am I going somewhere where there's an outdoor gear store where I could buy or grab whatever I need that I might've lost. Right. Which again is not ideal. It sucks, but that's the cost of doing business. Right. You can't be like, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry client. Like, you know, my, my hiking boots didn't make it. And all I have are my vans that I wore on the plane. So I can't do the shoot. doesn't work like that. That's a great way to, to not have a career, um, for very long. So I have to think about that stuff.
1: Yeah.
2: And there's not always a store where you can replenish that stuff. Yeah, exactly. A trip I was just on with uh film, film crew and one of the um the filmmakers lost one of his bags which had a ton of equipment in it and he had packed a carry-on with the most essential camera gear so it didn't impact the shoot too much but he did have some stuff in that other bag he had to wait like a few days for to to get it he had only one basically one pair of pants one pair of shirt uh, one shirt he wore for like the first four days There was where we were there was really nowhere he could go shopping so he was just kind of at the mercy of the uh, the baggage people for a few days, and luckily we were able to, to be productive for a few days before we got his stuff. But I always wondered that must be so tough, you know. For me as a writer, just as a traveler, it's it's not that's not a big deal. But for him, for you guys, it's like that's make or break for the whole the whole project.
0: Yeah, I, it's it's interesting. Um, you know, for me too, I like to consider my flight times and if I'm like okay if I'm going to arrive there is it safer for me to arrive a day early so that I have an extra day for gear to arrive just in case or are there alternate flights like if you're like I'm on the only I'm on the last flight of the day is that the smartest thing should you be on the first flight of the day so that if your bags didn't make it the next flight could take them so I think that like with the higher risk trips or the ones where it's like more crucial I just try to think through that stuff um, a little bit more and, and consider things and think about it. And yeah, just try to like, you know, really think through, like um, how can I limit those situations from occurring, I guess you could say.
1: As we kind of wind down here, I think one thing that is often probably, I won't say misunderstood, but not presented to the consumer of a lot of media projects is, you know, you see the person out on the trip doing the trip in a video or, or a photo log or whatever it is, but you, there's never really any, Uh, info on on what went on behind the scenes. Like, when you're planning an expedition for a sponsor, like, say you're going on a Nat Geo shoot or something like that, how much of the itinerary do you have a say over versus how much is, like, the sponsor being like, I want this shot, this shot, and this shot, and if it doesn't happen, I'm not paying? I
0: think it all depends, right? If you're being hired to shoot a commercial assignment, usually a company or a brand is coming to you with a shot list and this is what they want you to create and they want to work with you because you can create that, right? So if a client's coming to me, yeah, they usually have a shot list. They have specifics they need. That's great. Um, Obviously, there is a collaborative effort to figure out a lot of times where we're gonna go, what angles we're gonna shoot, what perspectives, this and that. But um, I'm oftentimes fulfilling their needs and desires. Now, there are also assignments that come to mind where like a a client just needs to promote X or needs to promote Y, they need to shoot this thing, and they might be coming to me for for more creative control. Like, hey, we need a location, we need talent, we need this, we need that, and so I am then putting on my production hat um, and trying to figure out a lot of those logistics for them. Okay, well, what time frame, like the first question I'll ask somebody is like, great, awesome, that all makes sense. When do you wanna shoot this? Because when they want to shoot this will we'll greatly determine where we could go, right? Or are there limitations? Do they need to shoot this in the American West? and they need to shoot this stateside, like Europe, wherever? Um, if they're like, well, we need to shoot this in, you know, in the middle of January, well, I'm like, well, but we can't have snow. Okay, so that's like South America or that's somewhere else. So um, I think that there's always ways to look at things, and, and usually there's always some give and take. My favorite assignments are the ones where Um, there is a lot of collaboration and I'm bringing, you know, a lot of my expertise to the table, but I, but I really feel like people come to me for that expertise in some way, you know, like they, they know that I thrive in these environments. Um, and I think that's benefited me as kind of being a specialist in certain environments and or areas and, or, um, and, or in, in certain styles of photography, I guess you could say. Cool.
2: I have one question before we close out. What is the one thing that you see people doing on Instagram with their photos that you absolutely hate? Is it oversaturation? Is it certain filters that people think look good, but actually look really fake and terrible? What's the one thing that you just can't stand to see people do in their otherwise fine photos?
0: Hmm. I mean, I think that if anything, I just, I've become pretty unattached to that. Like who gives a shit what people are doing with shit? their photos. Right. It doesn't matter to me because I don't, because I'm not being subjected to look at it. I'm choosing to look at it, right? If you're choosing to follow somebody that you really don't enjoy their work, why are you doing that? Is it just performative? That seems kind of weird. So I think for me, it's like I surround myself with things that inspire me. And like nowadays, I feel less and less um, like in need of being inspired by images. I, I try to look at you know architecture and typography and design and. Films and whatnot to to be inspired. Um, my my you know things that are close to me, things that I don't need to like look at pictures all the time. That's great, and I look at pictures all day. Sometimes I feel overwhelmed by looking at photographs. The thing that I think bothers me the most is when someone goes out there, they spend all this time, all this money. They've gone to the ends of the earth. They've had this amazing life-changing experience, and then they share a photograph, and all they tell me is the mountains are calling, and I must go. Like that is a disservice to them. And everybody else, because you had this meaningful experience. Now tell me what it was like, yeah. you know, that's that's
1: important. It's,
2: it's ripping off John Ware quotes. So it's a caption thing. It's not in the filters, it's in the captions. That's that's where you can mess it up. The, the,
0: the caption or the voiceover or the whatever you have, you know, like I, I can already oh. see so much in the image. I just want to know what else is out there, I guess.
2: Take me back. Live, laugh, love. Exactly. All
1: right. You, and you have a new book coming out. Give us a lowdown on that and where and when we can find it.
0: Um, I have a book out it's called wayward um, I don't have a copy here on my desk but it's called wayward and and it's essentially um, you know in a nutshell it's basically my experiences um, over the last decade shooting surfing and or other assignments or just you know documenting the world around me from from my words right so I've Created, been lucky enough to create like six or seven books. Um, a lot of those have been in collaboration with a t- very talented writers, journalists, what have you. Um, and I, I love the collaborative effort. But I felt in some way like, you know, some of my experiences have been lost because oftentimes I'm, you know, what I experienced in these environments that were so raw and rugged and wild, I kind of just like put on the back burner and let somebody else tell the story. Um, so this is really like, from my perspective, the things I learned, it's more of like a, a book where like, I think a young creative would have, would appreciate this, would appreciate these stories. And wayward is literally about taking a wayward path, right? An unconventional path to getting to what you want. This is not about following the straight and narrow. This is not about, you know, making the least amount of mistakes as possible. This is about figuring it out. And at times that can be painful and at times that can, uh, require a lot of hitting your head against the wall, but I feel like my um, modus operandi has always been to kind of like learn by making mistakes, and that's just how I figured life out, and I want to share those with other people.
1: All right, well, Chris Burkhardt, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, check out his new book, Wayward, documenting a remarkable career. His uh, short film, Uner, is also available now, as well as what was one of my favorite books of the last couple of years, At Glacier's End. That was a, That was a great picture book and story documenting uh, climate change and conservation efforts in Iceland. Chris, where can people find you?
0: Um, I mean, just Google my name. I'm out there. I'm. Uh, right <laughs> you can find me easily, and or if you ever have, you know questions or want to connect, come by the
2: gallery or come see us. Oh. All right, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Chris. All right, we're here in news of the
1: day after a great chat with Chris. Thanks again, Chris Burkard, for coming on the show first one, Evan, is a story that you wrote. I believe you actually wrote both of our News of the Day pieces today, the whiz that you are. But this one is about tipping in hotels. In fact, everything you need to know about tipping in hotels. Uh, You kind of break down everything from tipping the concierge to the front desk to the breakfast attendant to the the people cleaning your rooms. And it turns out that there should be tips in almost all of these situations, which I think a lot of people don't realize, Evan.
2: Yeah, the thing to keep in mind, too, is that The the piece is interviewing people who worked or have worked at hotels. So I think that when you are talking to people who work in a certain service industry, they're always going to tell you to over tip rather than under tip. It's like someone who used to work as a pizza delivery guy is probably going to over tip their pizza delivery guy. But uh, yeah, in general, they pretty much say that tipping is customary for pretty much anyone with whom you have a service interaction so not hotel management not if you you know have a uh talk to the general manager obviously but if you use a concierge not multiple times but if, if you use the concierge a few times you tip them once um bellhop front desk people valet um cleaning staff five to ten dollars i think is the standard is what was recommended which seems reasonable to me
1: yeah, it, well, it's funny. Like I tend to, uh, if I have cash, I will always leave some for the for the um, cleaning people. But I have to be totally honest. I'm so bad about carrying cash these days, especially if I'm not abroad. I almost never have cash in the U.S. That it it's it sucks for the hospitality staff because I think they're probably getting gypped out of a lot of tips due to the fact that everybody pays with a card these days. And there's not a, it's not like a restaurant where you can put your card in and add a tip.
2: Yeah, no, exactly. And I always feel like I'm in situations, particularly abroad, that I would, I would want to leave because when you pay, especially in restaurants, you pay for a meal with a credit card, and they don't have a, a tip line like they do in, in the US, it's almost expected that you don't tip at all, or you leave like some change as a tip. But I don't have change or cash anymore when I travel. So I don't leave anything. But I remember a few years ago, when cash was a little more ubiquitous, I would always leave a few euros or a few, you know, pounds or whatever I was uh, on the table. And that was like my five to 10% tip, but it's, it's tough for hotel staff. And when I was in Saudi Arabia, just now we were in a hotel for 13 nights, but nobody had cash. Cause like no one, just no one, we didn't have to pay for anything the whole trip. Cause we were, you know, on our, our Matador budget. So no one had cash and every, everything was paid for with a card. So it's like, you want to tip your hotel staff on you when you leave the cleaning staff. So how do you do that? You, you can't really,
1: yeah, it's, uh, it's a conundrum that I think hotels and other hospitality businesses are going to have to face in the next few years, uh, because it's not like cash is going to make an epic comeback. Um, but, you know, in the interim, what you can do is is plan ahead and, and, you know, keep some fives in your wallet. That's the best practice.
2: Yes. And one girl did go to an ATM and kind of took the hit and got a bunch of Saudi money out and gave like five, five to ten like Saudi dollars to everybody, and I misplaced one of my Saudi notes. And now I now have one still with me, a Saudi five, five real note, which is probably worth like 36 cents. So I have that in my wallet still. So if I guess if I'm ever short of cash, I need to tip, I don't have American money. I can just leave five Saudi rials, So someone will have money they can't actually spend in the U S but they can carry it around and use it as a conversation piece. So maybe that's even a more valuable tip than a $5 bill, who knows. So, all right. Uh, my article that we're talking about today is a potentially hot take. I don't know on mini bars. It's an article I wrote called "Unpopular Opinion: Hotel Mini Bars Are a Scam and You Should Never Use Them." Basically, saying there is almost zero situations in which using a hotel mini bar is necessary and worthwhile. What do you think?
1: I completely agree. Uh, it, it's another one of those situations where I think your unpopular opinion title probably isn't all that unpopular among you know, frequent travelers. But yeah, I don't ever use the hotel mini bar. Uh, at le- I guess I can't say never, but I very rarely use the hotel mini bar, um, mostly, I guess, because I don't just sit and drink alone in my hotel room. But if I, were g- if I did want to drink, I'd probably go downstairs to the bar.
2: Oh, well, think of the alternatives, right? You're thirsty. You, wanna, you want some alcohol. Go to the downstairs bar. There's no downstairs bar. Go to the nearest Applebee's or, or regular bar. Chances are, if you're in a hotel anywhere but rural Kansas, you're going to have a bar that you can walk to or access within five to 10 minutes. It's not more cost effective to do the hotel room thing. You're paying almost the exact same amount than to get a drink in a real bar with a real atmosphere. Not thirsty? You're hungry? Go to a convenience store. Go to the local uh, gas station there's a mill, go, go to a restaurant, even if it's late, gas stations are open late. Again, if you're only in rural Kansas, you might not have that option. But there's almost no situation where I think the minibar is useful.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I, I Usefulness, I don't know that usefulness was ever its intended purpose. I think it's more of a novelty. Uh, and exactly as you described in the article, a temptation.
2: Unless you have to drive a half hour to get to the nearest bar or grocery store, the 10 to 15 minute trek to get food or drinks is still so much more worth it just for the experience of being in an actual environment with a care with character and personality than hitting up your minibar i agree thanks for listening to no blackout dates make sure to subscribe on apple spotify or wherever you get your podcasts leave us of course a five-star review and if for some reason you want to follow what we're up to i'm EvanFlow underscore on instagram and he's tim winger one Also, a big shout out and thanks to our producer, Alex Halke, executive producer, Katie Hetrick, our email marketing guru, Kelsey Wilking, the Matador social crew, and everyone else on the team who puts up with us on a daily basis. We'll see you guys next week.